Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of In the Landscape. We're delighted that you're here with us. My name is Kate Sadler. I'm one of your hosts, and with me in studio is Charles Sadler. Good to be here. Yeah, uh-huh. good to have you here, Charles. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation about really a range of topics on landscape issues, sciences, business considerations, design, travel. If you have an idea for what might make a good a good show, there's a topic you're curious about. We're happy to, to certainly do the research and present it here. So feel free to check in with us via our email and social media channels. That all information is, is there for you at the end of each episode. We're still here in Texas, hanging out, working. We, we've gotten some projects that are really quite interesting. We're not necessarily allowed to talk about them. <laughs> Uh, sometimes in this business, you sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and um, especially if you have a podcast, you have to be pretty careful and right. cue to those closely. So, as well, much even as, just explaining, not getting into who that we're working for, but why would someone want to do that? Well, I, you know, sometimes there are disputes that happen in in landscape. I mean, we've had episodes about neighbors, and mm-hmm. you get hired to do legal cases, and right. people hire you know consulting arborists to basically present your expertise. You know, we don't always think of, I think we think along like criminal lines, <laughs> at least I do when I think of legal cases, but if there are a lot of civil cases out there that, uh, that may be, you know, related to the impact, especially on trees. I mean, we've talked about like, if a branch is overhanging your property, you can't pick the fruit, but you can eat the fruit if it falls on your ground Mm -hmm. in certain jurisdictions. So we're by no means lawyers, but we are expert consulting arborists and we get that work occasionally. I think that's all I want to say about that to tread like right. It's quite interesting. Sometimes it's an existing tree. Other times a tree's been cut down. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I mean playing detective, it might seem impossible to tell from a tree stump Mm -hmm. the value of what it was when it was Mm -hmm. standing, but Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of tricks. Like if it's in a forest or other trees, you look up. If the canopy is very open, I mean, you can imagine it's a big tree stump and there's a big area where other trees are not. There's like a void. So it's, I've learned lots of techniques. You have to be really creative. You can look at uh, satellite photos, sometimes they're dated, even family snapshots of a property mm-hmm. or a business or, or a Google street view. And so you get really creative on to tell what does that tree look like? Well, we, we do our research. Um, there's a lot of their mathematical formulas that we apply, and there's the research of other landscape scientists out there. So we read studies and make sure we are bringing the best science and information to this. It's not a matter of very little about it is subjective. It's really just bringing you know, a, a wealth of knowledge to bear on whatever information is available and then making a very straightforward representation of that information is how we see it. So it's a very interesting side to the landscape business. It's <laughs> if you're interested in getting into it, you know, you could certainly give us a call or contact us, but um, it's something that has kept us unexpectedly rather busy this summer. So we are a little behind on things like our classes. We were so excited to roll those out. And for, you know, we are, we're getting those modules ironed out and presented to people who signed up. 
but we've sort of backtracked a little bit, are the one course that is fully complete, ready to take is our Boxwood course. And that has been submitted for accreditation. So we're just waiting to see how many credits we can get from the American Society of Landscape Architects. Mm -hmm. If you have an organization that you're trying to get credits for, let us know and we can always submit it. But we just wanted to be sort of full disclosure. We're getting those pulled together. Of course, this is August of 2020. So if you're listening to this as a back issue, it's probably just visit our site. (laughs) If it's up, it means all the modules are ready to go. We invite you to take the courses you like. And for many of us, that pandemic just sort of threw us for a loop. And then, you know, working from home, having a toddler, trying to figure it all out has been something. And so. we've grown in a way. We've yeah. hired a person in, in Texas that is now, That's true. their role is expanding. Yeah. Okay. So that, you know, we always do a little bit of catch up on the program about what we're up to. Hopefully it's remotely interesting to those out there listening, <laughs> or if you're other landscape professionals, you can relate to the, the, the struggle. <laughs> and uh, today we are talking about vines. So we've done right plant, right place. We sort of Sometimes we go big, kind of big picture, and sometimes we go really specific. And so today is just about a specific sort of shape of plant almost. I bet there's a ton of different species and, you know, a lot of variety among vines. So let's start by talking about what what vines even are, what constitutes a vine plant. Okay, <laughs> plant sure. <that> vines. <laughs> I like using hair and North America, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. So it tells us a vine is a plant whose stem requires support and which climbs by tendrils or twining or creeps along the ground. And it's also any of various sprawling herbaceous plants such as tomato or potato, and it's even said a squash, that lack specialized adaptations for climbing. Well, speaking of neighbors, we have a a tendril of what looks like it might be a watermelon coming through our fence. And we're not discouraging that behavior. (laughs) We're kind of letting it come through. And if it wants to fruit on our side, you know, I mean, sometimes there are benefits. (laughs) So, You know, like a subset, as I was researching this, which I had not come across this before, is called a liana, which is, uh, Wikipedia tells us, it's a long-stemmed woody vine that's rooted in the soil. It needs vertical support. So that's really a, with all vines, they cannot support themselves to grow vertically at much height. A liana, its goal is to climb to the canopy to get access to the to light. It's a very prevalent in rainforests, so in the tropics, and that they can get to be a two foot diameter trunk. So that would be like as big as one's waist. So they can get enormous, which is really true of many vines. They don't have the structural integrity that a tree would. They usually lack that. And I'm reading this this book on plant physics now, which relates to some of the consulting arborists we do, work we do. And so they explain vines, how the cells in the vine, when it is creeping along the ground, its rigidity is similar to a tree or a shrub, more or less. The cells are, it's pretty firm and it's going in a certain direction. When it meets, like a host plant, which would be a tree or a shrub, and it determines that it can grow vertically, the cells elongate and they get more flexible in a vine. And so that way, if it's attaching you know, to a, a sweet gum tree, let's say, and that sweet gum tree is swaying and moving, 
the vine will move with it. And that's really part of its strategy. Well, but we were talking at the start of the show that some of the worst invasive species also happen to be vines. So it seems like the strategy should be to be a beneficial partner and like rely Mm -hmm. on your host tree to support you to reach the sunlight. And yet that doesn't always happen. What are some of the non-beneficial vines we should be on the lookout for? So vines, some of like the usual suspects that are tend to be detrimental. Some of them are horribly detrimental to native existing trees and shrubs that I see in North America are English ivy, which is Hedrahelix, I believe is the scientific name. It's an evergreen ivy. And so that becomes, that attaches itself with feet more or less. So it's adventitious roots. It's attaching to the tree. And when I've chatted with other real, very knowledgeable, like board certified arborists around the country, they've explained some of the vines, they get moisture from the host. Even if you cut the vine at the ground with a chainsaw, you cut right through it. So it's no longer attached to the soil. The vine, it can keep on living because mm. it really is getting moisture from the host. So English ivy, it can be very pretty growing on an old building or to actually to give. Vines can give a new building a lot of, a lot of sense of place and history. Mm-hmm. So that would be, that's English ivy is particularly detrimental to trees. And you see that. In the countryside, in the suburbs, the enormous tree, and there's this column of evergreen vine. Now, is it also detrimental to built structures, or can it be, or are there vines that are? Yeah, that's a good point. It can be, because there's, if it's a building with mortar, or if it's a wood building, both of those, these adventitious roots attach themselves. And so it, it'll degrade the mortar, the mortar eventually will crack, so they're there's definitely a place. I mean, I've been in conferences that landscape architect and arborist, I'm fond of James Urban. I mean, he was saying in an urban condition under a tree, what do you plant as a ground cover? I mean, he said this English ivy. So in a, that, which is a little controversial, but in an area where it's so difficult to grow any plant, you're going to have dogs are going to use that, you know, as a bathroom, not to be indiscreet. Uh, there's going to be trash. It's going to be a drought condition. So there's, not that there's that the plant has no merit, but it's one to be aware of. So, what are some of the other like real invasives that one should be aware of? That you might even one might even take the time and effort to try to remove from a landscape. Uh, Japanese bittersweet. So that's, if I remember correctly, I think that's twining, which well, is very pretty. I mean, it has those bright berries, right? People the sort use of yellow, yeah, ornamental. So that, so these plants that have more or less like escaped and that are, mm. they were ornamental at one point. Mm-hmm. Somebody, I mean, some of the history, it's a horticulturalist in a European country often is going to another country, Asia, somewhere else. They're bringing back the most interesting plants that's in cultivation. Then it travels from Europe to the United States in the horticultural circles. And then it escapes that it's, there's some plants that through the birds eating the berries or other forms, they spread very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so it's, so the Japanese bittersweet. So I mean, I've even heard people, we've, I've even chatted with horticulturalists and read articles how it's using it in an ornamental way where you find it growing in a disturbed site or the wild, mm-hmm. cutting it, 
even that's not a good idea because mm. you're taking those berries with you mm-hmm. and you're spreading them. So it's really better to leave it be or to remove it. There's kudzu in the oh, south. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like a well-known vine. There's porcelain berry. Mm-hmm. That's also very pretty, but it was ornamentally used. There's wild grape. You see that? Now, what are some of the native here to this region, native beneficial vines that, and then we'll get to how we might use them in sort of a design way. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Virginia creeper, and so that's also a cousin of Boston ivy. Mm. So those are uh, similar, deciduous, where the leaf, it's like more or less like a compound leaf. Mm-hmm. So it looks like your, like your hand with multiple points. So both of those are deciduous, have great fall color. Beautiful, yeah. They can be used ornamentally. In Texas, the passion flower, which we see when we're out you know, taking hikes along the canals here. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a subtropic, maybe tropic even, I mean, with a very complex flower. That's a native. Some of these projects I'm working on, there's a pool project I'm working on. And so for the pool code, you, always, you need a fence mm-hmm. in North America. That's maybe there's parts of the world where you don't need a fence. But so how do you make a fence interesting? Well, a vine can be a beautiful way. Vine can be trained to a fence. And depending on the vigor, if it's a pretty vigorous vine, it can be trimmed like a hedge mm. right on the fence. So from so, a distance, it looks like, oh, it's beautiful, green and flowers. So what, what would be some vines that you might incorporate, or species of vine that you might incorporate into that? Well, here in the southern U.S., I'm familiarizing myself with vines that I didn't come across as much that are, that are more or less native. And the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Foundation, I use that quite a bit as a resource. That it's a great way to search for plants. So some vines, more or less native to the southern U.S., bignonia. And so these, some of these are new to me. I, they might not, I might not be pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> That's very pretty with like a coral-ish red, large flower. It almost looks like a foxglove or digitalis. Then trumpet vine I'm familiar with, and there's different colors and shades of that. And trumpet vine actually grew quite well in the New York area. There were some, there was one like light pole or telephone pole in our little town that had oh, I can really robust. That. It, it <laughs> can get vine. very, it yeah. can get almost tree-like. Yeah, very beautiful. Then lanicera, so that's honeysuckle. And there's native honeysuckles that are beneficial to pollinators that hummingbirds love. And those, we have some of those on our fence now coming in from the neighbor's side. And oh, again, wow. you sort of trimmed it back so that it wasn't getting a lot of three-dimensional growth. I guess oh, it's right. kind of like keeping it two-dimensional if it's on a two-dimensional surface is kind of a nice strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And it can be hand-proned if it's very vigorous, like the one we have. I just use hedge trimmers. And then mm-hmm. I always have the hand pruners to do a finer cut. If something grows vigorously, the hedge trimmers, the, the hand Shear trimmers are great. Let's see this uh, this gelsium, which I think is a, a Carolina trumpet flower. There's lots of names for it. There's quite a few native clematises or clematis. <laughs> Let's see, those are some that come to mind. Yeah, so carefully selecting the vines can cause a lot of trouble. So selecting something that has the right amount of vigor is important too, that it's not known to be invasive. Does it help to give the vines a structure? So I remember when you were preparing the, and we even shared about this in our outbuilding episode, the the little shed for, 
I think you had some Virginia creeper, maybe another vine was sort of woven throughout. You put the wire structure there. And so Mm. one could do that for a pergola that was covered in wisteria. You see that all the time. Or having a trellis on the side of the building, or as you mentioned, a, a fence. But I guess what I'm getting at is that like, if you put the wires on the building or you put the trellis on the on the wall, you're giving the vines somewhere else to go. And then maybe it's easier to train them. I don't know if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, you're very correct. So some of the vines, let's see, the ones with the adventitious roots that will attach themselves. So those, the climbing hydrangea vine will do that. Those you have to be particularly mindful. Is this mm. the right plant that's going to attach to the building or whatever the structure is? And that can be okay. <laughs> if it doesn't attach, then there's some that have tendrils. So it looks like like a piece of spaghetti that mm. once it touches the structure and it winds around, it comes off of the vine. It, but it needs support because that's really an underlying characteristic of a vine. It can't support itself. And when I visit residences, when there is a vine, I mean, a trend I would say is many times there's not a sufficient support for the vine. It needs to be, the vines get pretty heavy and they're vigorous. So really thinking, I mean, the vines can weigh not necessarily hundreds of pounds right away, but but they, but, but the weight adds up over time. Mm, that's so, a good consideration. So building something which might, it looks like overkill to start with. You're like, my gosh. Like, and you have like this one little tendril kind of working right. its way along. It looks ridiculous. Like, oh. <laughs> I mean, like the vine is $30. Yeah, you know, I'm going to make up numbers like, you know, in US dollars that I know of. And a structure, I mean, there's a project we're going to be working on in Houston for a citrus tree, which we're going to create an espalier out of, is the plan. And so, I mean, it's cost hundreds or thousands of dollars to create this structure, which is way more than the, than the initial plant. Mm-hmm. Now, the plant, though, we want to have a long, like a life of many decades. So if the structure is $300, let's say, that's insignificant over the course of its life. But initially, it takes sometimes, the, like I have to educate the clients mm-hmm. that to just having some twine is not going to be sufficient. <laughs> well, and then interestingly, of course, there's the, you mentioned some of the fruiting vines, something like tomatoes, where you really, part of the fruiting you know, getting it to do as much fruiting as you'd like it to, it's, I suppose you could, you could have your tomatoes trailing along the ground, but they might be prone to pests or might not produce as much if they're not getting as much of that vertical sort of encouragement from the structure. So you need, Mm -hmm. you know, tomato cages or some people even grow them upside down and somehow that. Oh, right. (laughs) It hangs out the bottom. Gives it the, yeah, the structure that it needs. So that's an interesting concept. Actually, vines in baskets are so lovely, or even um, mm. containers. Like, that's a really nice addition. I like the potato vine, oh, right. which that's, has that bright foliage. and um, Which is ornamental. You can also eat. It's more or less like a sweet potato. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. And that's, I mean, that's a trend in horticulture as populations, I mean, for many reasons having things that are ornamental and edible. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not? Like yeah, the amount absolutely. of resources that go into, I mean, it's such a luxury to be able to grow a plant just for its beauty, but why not have, so there really is a trend. And I think there's a potato vine that I, I've read about, if I remember correctly. So it's going to be produce big, beautiful potatoes, just like if you were like a farmer would grow. Mm-hmm. So you're growing it for the vigor of 
of the food and it's very ornamental. So oh, the foliage cool. that comes, some of them are, are like a chartreuse is popular. There's a black version. Mm-hmm. There's burgundy. There may even be a variegated, I don't recall. So that's definitely a trend in horticulture, having the plants really work harder, not just be pretty. So we mentioned containers and those provide sort of a simple agenda. You know, the vine is designed to kind of pour over the side so that it's not really competing with the other plants within the, the pot. So is there a way to use vines in the landscape? I mean, you mentioned they really can be a ground cover in some cases. We think of trying to train them to go vertically or along a, a building or a fence. Would you ever encourage a vine on a tree? Is that, mm-hmm. or does that kind of interrupt the aesthetic of the tree's trunk or does it provide, maybe you mentioned sort of fall color. So if you're in a region that doesn't have, you know, the sugar maples, could uh, you somehow encourage the Virginia creeper to stand in for the fall color wow. in a tree-like form? Yeah, that gives me a doubt. Here in Texas, one of the projects we're working on, I'm suggesting uh, sweet gum. It's like mm. there's regions in Texas, Texas that are very piney, like piney regions. So the sweet gum is a great fall color, but training fall foliage vine to a pine tree, the, the, the loblolly pine and the slash pine, they're very open. So oh. it grows tall. There's a lot of open trunk and that, that would be fantastic. And then I guess with a vine, it would want to be planted and designed intentionally. So it didn't look like a weed, but there's always a way to do that where it looks, doesn't look like, oh, you're letting your place go, but it looks like it's an asset. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that disagreement over Christmas lights. It's almost like if you don't do enough on a tree trunk, if you've just got like the one wispy tendril going up, that's <laughs> like badly spaced, it kind of is like, well, then why did you even try? You know, right. it's, you kind of need a certain volume. And, and again, attentionality, which is something we've referred to before. Um, there's a critical mass. Yeah. So there's one of my favorite fall color vines, but it's like, not my favorite vine, although one might want to leave it alone if it's already growing. And that's poison ivy here in the United States, Eastern United States, actually. I don't think it grows on the West Coast. You have certainly poison oak, which also has actually nice fall color. (laughs) But um, is that a harmful, well, it's harmful to touch it, but is it an invasive species or is it somehow okay to kind of leave it alone? It's not. If you're not going to run into it. With all the arborist conferences and arborists I meet with and the organic farming uh, NOFA, which is like an organic farming group that does lots of education. So to my knowledge, poison ivy is not at all not parasitic. Mm. So it's, it's a benign plant which grows on trees and it produces those waxy berries that are mm-hmm. They become ripe in the fall, and they're a rare food for migrating birds. Oh, they're like okay. very beneficial. So, yeah, poison ivy that can become so vigorous where it's almost looks like a tree in itself. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it overwhelm a tree, though. Interesting. Where another one we we mentioned some of the Asian wisterias. Those are particularly in the southern U.S. Those are very invasive. Those cause a lot of harm. So, when I'm on a property. Maybe it's a, an arborist or a client, and I'll mention, I've learned not to say it. I'll say, oh, wisteria will be pretty by the pool on a pergola or in Connecticut. That would be perfectly acceptable. It's not because of a shorter growing season and mm-hmm. other factors. Mm-hmm. 
So in the southern U.S., it's horribly invasive, and it oh, takes over woodlands and destroys native trees by sort of strangling them. Well, and I guess that's sort of the point, not that this episode is about invasives per se, but they're not invasive necessarily where they grew naturally. <laughs> right. You know, like they, they probably were a part of an equal, you know, a system that had some equilibrium to it because that's just sort of how nature functions. Right. There's no know? plants or no, or no, I mean, in my opinion, are good or bad. They're not good or bad. Yeah. So it's, there's just not competition. Right. Right. And so things get a little out of hand. So we should talk a little more about how we would use vines in the landscape. I mean, as we've seen, it's like such a huge range of plants. and They flower and they fruit. And I mean, it's really a very exciting medium, if that's the right word. Like if you mm-hmm. think about it, really lends something to the landscape beyond trees, shrubs, and, you know, flowers. Right. It's vertical, but it can take up almost, almost no space, which is so rare. Mm-hmm. So in... I guess it's Beatrix Ferran design at New York Botanic Garden, the Rose Garden. Lots of lattice, fencing, pergolas. There's like a central gazebo type pergola. And so roses are a big category that can be trained. That's used to great effect. It can be done so humbly too, just with basic hardware and wires on a building. And all of a sudden you have roses, which is on on a horizontal plane. And so I've done quite a bit of that over the years. It's buying the right, so stainless steel hardware, if using hardware would be very nice. So galvanized is not shiny, but it also is not going to rust. And then there'd be brass, there'd be other hardwares. So you want something that's not going to rust would be very important because it could damage the building. It could leave a stain. And then what you're drilling into. So there's times where I work with carpenters or builders or contractors where I will do a drawing. This is, and then the person that's more, much more skilled at construction than me will build it. We're talking about the weight is important too. Saying, I expect it's going to be in this weight range, or this is the southern side of the house. If it's made out of wood, let's say it may get damaged by the sun. So really thinking it through. I like having space between the structure. Let's say it's a lattice or a trellis in the building. Mm-hmm. So it's even like an inch or two. So there's air. So you don't have mildew, even like just like debris from the leaves. If the vine is right up against the building, it can catch debris. We're working on some projects in Houston like that, where homes closer to the city center. So it's still a freestanding home, quite a large home. And the lot, it's a smaller lot. It's like an urban lot. And so vines are perfect for that, where lots of fencing for privacy with the neighbors. And some of these properties, the garage could be a guest house or a separate office. So it's like a two-story garage. And that's where we're, where there's a concept for, for an espalier, because it's, it's a giant blank wall. So thinking through the structure, if you're going to see it, it should be an asset. It shouldn't look like, oh my gosh, that is so ugly. <laughs> and then there's other cases. So on some of these tighter urban properties, it's quite shady. And so the... Matching the vigor is important that if it's going to be a shady site, sometimes it has to be an overly vigorous plant in order to survive in a shady spot. Well, but I, I imagine that there are many species of vine that, although maybe the, the strategy is to climb up a tree to get more sun, they're, they're still somewhat understory plants mm-hmm. um, because they don't have that natural, that organic kind of structure on their own. So they're not competing 
necessarily to get all the way to the top, but I'm, I'm sure some are. You know, a plant that's uh, listeners that are, I guess, in the temperate regions of the U.S. and maybe other parts of the world too. I know the northeastern U.S. like you know well where we spend a lot of time. The climbing hydrangea is really special on trees, and to my knowledge, it doesn't do harm to the tree, and it's shade loving, so it'll grow. Mm more or less on all sides of the tree and it'll get up it can grow up to like 60 feet tall and it has these white often flat headed flowers like a lace cap and the fall color i think is gold so that that's quite special and that's a that's an old design trick in connecticut i mean every third house would have a climbing hydrangea on the chimney so it, i mean if you have a sizable brick chimney or stone that can be very pretty where it's it's something that season, it seasonally changes. It can grow quite tall. It can be maintained also, so it doesn't climb onto the rest of the house. It's not overly vigorous. Now, let's say you inherit a property that has vines, and some of them are quite old even. Is there a way to sort of renovation prune vines? I'm, you know, what made me think of it was I was thinking grapes, of course, <laughs> are kind of the, one of the most important vines probably in human culture. And they fruit, they have the fall color. They get quite woody, I think, the little trunk that's not a part of the, you know, as you mentioned, the, the type that, that has some wood structure, but then will will vine out if given support. But, you know, can you inherit like grapevines that aren't really kind of doing anything anymore. And is there anything you can do rather than just cut it down and start over? Oh, there sure is. I've done that over time. I can recall there was a property in the Northeast. The parents passed away of old age and the daughter inherited it. And I remember her contacting us. It was a beautiful shaded porch. It was shaded by, a, I think it was a wisteria vine. It had gotten so heavy. It was a metal, like a metal pergola porch structure that was open. So there were like metal pipes. It was so dense, there was no sun. So it was not appealing. And so that was a good project. I remember I had a large crew. They were very eager. We, we ended up, in retrospect, we over pruned it. So there's some projects where, and that, if I was to do that again, now it responded perfectly fine because this was so vigorous. But if I was to do that again, and that was like early in my career. So that was, you know, 15 years ago or so. <laughs> You want to prune it back to a juncture. So with some of the flowering plants, where you prune it back to is really important. So grapes, that would be true. You don't want to indiscriminately prune it. It might not flower or fruit. It would be similar to a tree or a shrub. To prune it back to a juncture where there's, where there's another branch, is that's generally a reasonable way to go. And then it's very likely that there'll be latent or dormant buds at that juncture. That's one of the reasons that you go back to a juncture. Great. Is there anything else to share this episode? No, of course, if you have a favorite vine to share with us or you want to share your photos, feel free. Of course, if we misspoke and you you happen to know that a certain plant has destroyed <laughs> your building and you'd like to share that with us, we would certainly like to share that with our listening audience as well. Um, I certainly hope that hasn't happened, but you know, again, as we see with the wisteria, it may behave slightly differently in the Northeast than the Southwest. And, and then all of a sudden you have a problem on your hands. So different parts so, of the yeah. world too. Yeah, of course. Yes. So like a cold climate, I mean, that's invasive in a warm climate might be perfectly reasonable in a cold climate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, and there's, we realize that we only know what we know, so which is from our experience. And there's a lot more experience out there. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, so anything else for us this episode? Well, you know, a, a little bit of history and researching vines and some of the listeners might know about this. I was not familiar with it. It's called the great vine at Hampton court. So that's a, you know, a historic property in England. This is from the crown chronicles.co.uk. The great vine at Hampton court palace planted by capability Brown that we've talked about in 1768 is the largest in the world and still gives a harvest each autumn. And so it was grown in a greenhouse, and I think in the 1990s it recalled the greenhouse, the structure was wooden, and the vine was attached to it, so it's like hundreds of years old, So they, and they needed to replace the greenhouse. But the vine was attached to the greenhouse, so they ended up building what looks like a metal and glass greenhouse around the old greenhouse. Wow. <laughs> and that it's so productive. So it, I guess... What I'm trying to illustrate is how long lived. This is hundreds of years old. At the base, the circumference of the trunk is about 12 feet. Oh my gosh. So yeah. it's, it's, it's enormous. It keeps getting larger. Yeah. And it produces, on an average, or the average year it produces 600 pounds of fruit. And the record, I think, was over 800 pounds of fruit. And it's, it's a dessert grape. So it's a very sweet grape. Mm. So I thought that was quite fascinating that. Of course, it's been tended to, but it it produces fruit. It's you know there's like a level of fascination with something that's climbing and fruiting or flowering, and it's actually very practical too. We are looking forward to ahead to some episodes. We'd like to include an episode on propagation. So although we haven't talked about how you <laughs> how you propagate really any of the plants we've talked about, we'll we'll hopefully touch on that in a future episode and just the longevity of this plant and the relationship of plants to each other. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you have a specific type of grape that you want to use to make, you know, your your type of wine, I'm, I'm sure there's a great lineage there. So that, I'm, that must be very interesting. Anything else to share with us this episode? Well, uh, the horticultural principle for the week, mm. uh, what we thought would be good. So matching the old adage, the right plant in the right place. So matching with vines, it's particularly important that the vigor of the vine is appropriate to the site mm. or to the program. So if you're in a certain part of the world and you want shade, so the vine ought to be vigorous enough that it's going to grow up a structure and produce shade. If it's So I've, come, I've had both experiences with some of these beautiful clematis. They're not that vigorous. And I've, where it hasn't really climbed, the client was disappointed. The flowers were great, but it was not that vigorous. So is this something you'd suggest people check out at their local botanical garden or other, like kind of take notes? Because again, I wouldn't, I think maybe the trumpet vine is not like native to the New York region. You wouldn't, it looks tropical-ish, so you wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily think it would grow well there, but then seeing it growing on light posts or, or telephone poles, you see, oh, okay, this would probably do well. Um, and then you have some confidence in planting it, or, or what would you recommend? Yeah, right, really seeing like the plant, what's its track record in my climate mm-hmm. is important. And then if it's very vigorous, being prepared to maintain that, like yeah. to shape it. I mean, some of the properties where the vines are really a part 
of the landscape, architecture, the planning. Like I think of places in the in New England that I maintained where it's a deciduous, like a Virginia creeper on a, on a home. The same way the lawn was mowed every week, the vine, it's going to climb over the windows and the shutters. And so it's a matter of getting ladders. And it was probably like monthly during the summer. And that was, I mean, that's where if it was a public, let's say a college campus, IV and vines are popular. That's sort of part of the design conversation. That's going to, particularly for a new building, the vines add so much history. I mean, it looks like it's like the building's been there and just discussing that. Is there the capability to maintain this? Mm. And if there is, then it's a good fit. If it's not, there'd be less vigorous vines that maybe they wouldn't cover the building within a few years, but that there's not going to be that like quite intensive maintenance. Mm. Good point. All right. Well, this was a, a nice little focused episode, fairly focused for us. And I, I it was a, <laughs> fun to think through some of it. Vines are just, del- there is something delightful about them, especially, mm-hmm. with, you know, a, I don't know, a, a squash vine with the little curly Q tendrils and things. And there's something very special about the, the shape and the feel of vines in the landscape. So I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to talk more about them. We look forward to coming up with another episode for you next week. Feel free to drop us a line, send us corrections, ideas, questions, and we'll try to put together episodes that address those as best we can. And so until next time, we hope you get a little time in your landscape. Until then. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.